Hello, podcasting world, and welcome back to the Core Console RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, is Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, man? Doing great. It's the first day of spring today. Pretty is excited. It? Yeah, it's freezing. It is very cold, which yeah. is weird for South Carolina. Pretty excited to be in our brand new recording studio. Yes. For those of you who are watching the video version of this and you're like, wait a minute, that looks just like the old recording studio. That's because it is. The table that we had ordered for the new podcasting studio uh, apparently was damaged in transit. So they sent it back to wherever it came from, and we still have no podcasting room. That's okay. It's all right. It's so half, It's It's in progress. So. It is. It's in progress. It's going to be cool, I think. Yeah. And if not, we'll try again later. (laughs) Keep improving. All right. So today we are going to be covering some diabetes management because if you have not seen, hopefully you have, there is yet another set of guidelines for treating someone with type 2 diabetes. So we had the ACE guidelines. We had the ADA. Now we have the American College of Physicians have thrown their hat into the ring, which I guess they've they've had guidelines, but these are the 2018 updated mm-hmm. guidelines. And the good thing is, is they all conflict each other. <laughs> so th- now we will go through and figure out when to use what or what makes sense or why the guidelines are the way they are. Yeah, and to me, it's I find it pretty surprising that we could have all this data in diabetes patients and still not have a consensus on what the best A1C goal is for patients. And I think it's because if there was anything that was ever that ever needed to be really individualized, it's A1C goals. Really is patient-specific if there ever was something that needed to be patient-specific. Yeah, for sure. I agree. So we're going to go run through a short patient case, talk about maybe some treatment options, and then we'll kind of use that to jump into how we would use one of those sets of guidelines or a combination of all three or how we could look at it. Yeah, we'll kind of frame the main points of the new ACP update, um, and then we'll talk about how it differs from the other two, because it definitely does. Exactly. So, anything you want to cover before we get into the No, you can podcast? throw it out. We can, we can start with that. We'll front load them with the case. Whew, you guys are so lucky. <laughs> front loading with the case. All right, so 60, uh, KJ is a 67-year-old white male, that presents for diabetes management follow-up. He has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. His current A1C is 8.4%. He does have a microalbuminuria of 95 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, Other labs that we would care about are within normal limits. Uh, His home meds include metformin, uh, 1,000 milligrams. He's taking 500 milligrams twice a day. Uh, also on amlodipine, 10 milligrams once a day for his blood pressure, and atorvastatin, 80 milligrams. Yeah, so what we got here is a pretty standard diabetes patient. Um, he is a little older, 67 years old, A1C is 8.4, but otherwise he's got hypertension and dyslipidemia, which pretty much all patients with diabetes are going to have. So the question is, What's his A1C goal? Do we go down to 6.5 like the ACE guidelines might recommend? Is he less than 7 like the ADA guidelines recommend? Or, spoiler alert, is it between 7 and 8 like the ACP guidelines recommend? And not spoiler because that's what we're recommending, but spoiler because that's what the ACP are recommending. Yes, exactly. So, 
typically speaking, when you know when we think about guidelines, we're thinking about the ACE, which like Cole said, less than six, uh, six point five rather, um, and then the the ADA being less than seven. So the new guidelines that that give that range, we're give they they claim that it's evidence based. So we want to talk about some of the trials uh, that are responsible for them drawing that conclusion, and then maybe why the uh, less than seven goals still with the ADA, and then we will maybe attempt to justify the ACE guidelines, which right. I'm personally not a huge fan of the <laughs> that low of an A1C for a type two, but we'll see. So let's back up really quick. So the ACP put out four essentially guidance statements that is kind of the update of their recommendations. And the first one, which really all of the guidelines do mention, um, is that clinicians need to personalize the glycemic control, so personalize the A1C goal, and there's a lot of factors that go into it. Age, um, comorbidities, how they're responding to treatment, what their A1C is when they're first diagnosed, and where their A1C is right now. Um, and so they do make that caveat, even though they're recommending an A1C level between 7 and 8 for most patients, they say. Exactly. So do you want to start off with uh, the trial? you want me to take over the first one? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go through the first one. So the first one, just briefly, is the ACCOR trial, which most people have heard of. Um, and I think a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth about the ACCOR trial, and that's because the uh, results weren't that positive. So they were looking um, at more intensive um, hyper, or intensive glycemic control. So in A1C, they were going for less than six in the intensive group. Um, and then was it less than seven in the non-intensive group? Uh, yes, standard therapy was seven. It was seven point zero to seven point nine. Right. So between seven and eight, which is what these ACP guidelines are recommending, they didn't actually get to less than six in the intensive treatment group. They only got to six point four. Um, and the reason for that is because the trial had to be stopped early because the outcomes weren't very good. Um, they were seeing a lot of adverse events in the intensive group, um, a lot more hypoglycemia, and they saw an increased um, risk for death. And I think it was a 22% um, relative increased risk of death compared to the non-intensive group. So that's not that great. So there's, I would say, one mark against shooting for at least a super low A1C less than six or more specifically less than 6.5 yeah and it's anytime you see increase in death that's just usually a good fact like indicator that maybe it's not a great treatment option but yeah that's just that's you know we that's not evidence-based but (laughs) yes it is and that kind of goes to the third guidance statement of the acp guidelines they recommend de-intensifying therapy if a patient's a1c is less than 6.5 and that's almost exclusively based on the ACCORD trial where they saw the increased risk of death for those patients who were at an average A1C of 6.4. And it seems reasonable to me. You know, if, if I have a patient who I see is on a lot of meds, especially if it's sulfonylureas and insulin, which are high risk for hypoglycemia, I might be like, all right, we can probably de-intensify a little bit, um, and, you know, relax their control, especially if they're having symptoms. Exactly. So another trial that was published was the advanced trial, um, and they were also looking at uh, A1C goals, uh, intensive versus standard. And what they saw was that there wasn't really a difference between the two goals and the outcomes. So they used a intensive goal of less than 6.5, 
and uh, they did achieve right at 6.5. Uh, in the standard treatment, well, they achieved a goal of 7.3. No reduction in macrovascular events. So there, there was a little bit of a increased benefit with uh, the intensive control as far as microvascular, but the uh, microvascular events seem to be uh, driven by the neuropathy benefit. So a little bit, a little bit more benefit with uh, neuropathy, which I guess in this guy's case, he's got a little bit of a uh, macroalbuminuria going mm-hmm. on. So, you know, we could discuss that, right. but uh, the, the lower target did also, also didn't affect like the creatinine doubling or some of the other uh, kidney function, renal function um, goals they were looking at. So we have the Accord trial showing negative outcomes uh, and harm with lower A1C goals. Now we have the advanced trial showing as far as macrovascular, which is you know what, what a lot really of times worried what about. we're really worried about. Cardiovascular events was the biggest thing stroke, you're really thinking MI, about. Stroke, MI, yeah. The whole death thing. Yeah, that whole thing. You know, th- this one's showing no benefit. And so, you know, that's two of our big trials that we'll hear quoted. Uh, you want to go through UKPDS? Yeah, and a couple things, too, about the advance. So that was over five years, um, and you'll see that the timetable for benefit um, is important, uh, and that is a consideration with what you think your patient's um, current you know, predicted lifespan is at this point. Um, and also with the advance, of course, they saw more severe hypoglycemic events in the intensive group um, and more minor hypoglycemic events. Um, both of those were statistically significant. So that's definitely um, something to consider. Cole's always trying to emphasize the adverse effects and trying to put a negative spin on things. Well, you know, got to consider it. Got to <laughs> no, consider it. That's good. That's keeping me honest because I totally skipped over that. So that's good. So UKPDS, Cole, what's that about? Yeah. So um, it was a relatively large study. It had about 3,800 patients. Um, average of about 54 years old. Uh, they were targeting uh, fasting plasma, or they're targeting blood glucose levels of 108, um, and they were able to obtain A1Cs around 7. So this isn't nearly as intense as the Accord or the advanced trial, um, and that was in the more intensive treatment group. And the less intensive, they had a mean A1C of about 7.9, um, so right on the upper limit of where the ACP guidelines are recommending. So this is a trial that really kind of looked at, okay, so within that 7 to 8 range, um, what's better? And um, over this was like a 10-year follow-up, so it was a little bit longer. And it did, the intensive group um, did show benefit in any diabetes-related endpoint, they said. Um, the absolute difference was about 5.1 events in 1,000 patient years. Uh, but it was mostly due to the microvascular endpoints. Um, so again, not so much with the macrovascular. And a lot of this is, um, these are the trials that the ACP has picked out um, so that they can, of course, make their point and defend their A1C goal. Um, some of these trials, there's a little more nuances to them. You've got to consider what the patient was on, right? Um, so a lot of these trials, patients are on a lot of sulfonylureas, they're on insulin, some of them they're on metformin, um, but nowadays, you know, we have GLP-1s, which weren't really included in these trials, which are must, much safer when it comes to hypoglycemia, um, so if I have a patient who has an A1C of 6.9, let's say, I'm a lot less concerned about him if he's on metformin and GLP-1 than if he's on a sulfonylurea and insulin, because they're much higher risk for hypoglycemia. 
so that's just something to consider so i i think i definitely got off topic there no that's good that's good um but they didn't find any diff- any uh, mortality benefit uh, diabetes related death all cause mortality mi stroke and whatnot um so yeah that was over over just the first 10 years of that study and so the other study that we'll talk about is the VADT, uh, and again, compared the intensive versus standard. Um, basically, the summary is that you didn't see any difference in that group either. Uh, and that was looking at patients, um, it was the, the vet, in a veteran population, and they got a little bit of benefit as far as um, the cardiovascular, or no, I'm sorry, not cardiovascular, like the um, nephropathy and risk was decreased a little bit, uh, but the macrovascular, there was no difference. And so those are the four trials that the the new ACP guidelines use to justify their recommendation for that seven to eight in, in certain patient populations, especially elderly. Yeah, and I should mention with the UKPDS, it's kind of split into two groups essentially right so the 33 and the 34 the 33 was what i was talking about but there's also the 34 where they had some different a1c goals ukpds 34 um median in the intensive group was like 7.4 and in the non-intensive group it was more around eight um and they did see some benefit in that one metformin was um kind of the driver uh, for the benefit and on an extended follow-up of around 17 years, that's where they started to see um, reductions in all-cause mortality and uh, reductions in more diabetes-related endpoints. So that's where you really start seeing the benefit is long-term. And that's where they kind of talk about the legacy effect of metformin. The earlier you get it on, the more benefit that it has down the road. Um, and that's also why you need to consider, okay, so how long is, do I really think my patient's going to live? If they're only, you know, have a life expectancy of eight years, they might not see the full benefit of a really intensive A1C therapy that might take 10 or 17 years to really see. Exactly. And, and if we're pushing these patients, we're creating more of a, uh, pushing them to lower A1Cs, we're creating more of a burden as far as you know, taking more meds, having to pay for these meds, uh, even with, with Medicare coverage, you know, if they go into the donut hole or something like that, you know, or if it's a younger patient that doesn't have uh, insurance or has, you know, insurance is not that great, it can put a financial burden on these patients. And like Cole said, if you're not really expecting them to live or past that 17 year mark or, you know, longer to see this benefit with intensive glucose low or intensive A1C lowering, are we really helping them or are we actually kind of giving them a worse quality of life, so to speak? Yeah. So that's, that's where the debate is. And, and it's, I, I think it's justified. I think that to say that, Oh, it's just less than seven for every patient. I, I think is a little short sighted. Uh, I am very glad that the, the new guidelines, ACP started off their very first recommendation with, it needs to be patient specific and we need to consider the, the patient as an individual before uh, we just give a set goal. And I think that's super, super, super important. Yeah. yeah. I just don't think that, I mean, guidelines are, are great, but I, especially with something like A1C, it's it's really something you have to consider all the different variables. For sure. And I, it, it probably sounds like we're backing the ACP guidelines right now, which we're not necessarily, um, for me at least. Uh, it's still kind of up in the air, and it really just depends on the patient. Um, because ADA, like we said, was mostly across the board shooting for less than seven. Um, and you know, there might be a patient that is less than seven is good for them and they're not having symptoms and 
they have a long life expectancy and not a lot of other comorbidities, so you feel comfortable getting them there. Um, but this kind of speaks to the fourth guidance statement from the ACP that they put out, which um, is basically saying anyone with um, a lot of comorbidities or minimal life expectancy don't treat to a target A1C. They're saying, or actually, I should say specifically, a life expectancy less than 10 years don't treat to a target A1C, only minimize symptoms related to hyperglycemia. So they cite advanced age, which they consider 80 years or older, or if they have chronic conditions like dementia, cancer, um, end-stage renal disease, like severe COPD or severe congestive heart failure, they're saying don't even worry about the A1C. If they're having symptoms from their hyperglycemia, then you should treat that, but otherwise don't worry about it. So that's interesting, um, and you, it's it really... It, it, it's easy to say, okay, you have diabetes, let's knock you less than seven, here's some more meds, move on to the next patient. I think that making it patient-specific takes a little more thought and consideration and sometimes talking to the patient to figure out what's what's going to be best. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think that that is an interesting recommendation. Yeah, and I think, you know, as far as backing one of them, I'm personally kind of a hybrid between ADA and the... Um, the new ACP, I think, is where I would probably put myself. Yeah. Because I definitely, some people hated the new recommendations and thought they were ridiculous that the ACP uh, put out. And I, I I, think they honestly make a lot of sense, especially when you realize that the trials that they're talking about actually never reached goal A1Cs anyway. Right. And you start seeing that, like, well, the standard only met 7.5. or And VADT, which I didn't mention, they, they were, I think, 84 was all they got to in the standard. So when you start realizing that the average A1C was actually a lot higher than they anticipated, that it's one of those things that I think it actually makes sense what they're recommending. Yeah, which it was a big turn for me because in school, everything's very black and white. So it was really <laughs> easy to say, okay, they have diabetes. What's your goal A1C? Less than seven. Because at that point, we're trying to figure out what in the world an A1C means. Which, by the way, <laughs> if you're wondering is the um, essentially the average blood glucose that a patient has had over about three months or so. Um, so it's just a little more of a longitudinal picture of where their diabetes is at as opposed to a finger stick blood glucose test right there. Yes. So let's say for this patient, his A1C is 8.4 right now. Let's say we'll take a hybrid of the two uh, guidelines, ADA and the ACP. So we'll say less than 7.5 that agreeable seems reasonable seems reasonable doesn't have a lot of other health conditions going on other than hypertension diabetes uh dyslipidemias it seems to be under control so a1c 7.5 but like you said i think it you know it's they want that um that number and say okay well where do i need to get to but say his a1c's 13 and it's this guy's in the exact same situation you might not throw 7.5 at him right now because he'd be like oh man that is daunting. I don't, you know, I don't know if I can do that and get discouraged. So you have to set reasonable goals for that time, but the goals can can vary depending on what kind of progress the patient's making. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, so if we did say seven point five, then the question is, what medication are we going to add on? Because he's not really to the point where I would be pushing for insulin, especially in someone who's sixty-seven. And he's already on metformin. We could, one option would be to maximize the metformin dose. He's only on 500 milligrams twice a day. And we could uh, give him 1,000 milligrams twice a day as long as he can tolerate the GI effects of that and, and push him up that way. However, we're probably not going to get to A1C goal uh, just by doing that. I would still say maximize the 
the metformin just for the potential cardiovascular benefits, but as far as getting that almost a full percentage point down, uh, then I think we're going to need a second agent. So I am a huge fan, if I'm not going to use insulin, a huge fan of GLP-1s. As long as the patient can afford them, mm-hmm. their insurance covers them, I am a big big advocate for uh, GLP-1s. So just to kind of review, uh, GLP-1s work on a few different mechanisms. So the first one, obviously, is that there's GLP-1 receptors um, around the pancreas so that if you if GLP-1 binds, because it's an analog of it binds, it will stimulate the beta cells to start producing insulin. Um, at the same time, it can also bind where in a bind on those receptors and then cause alpha cells to decrease the production of glucagon. So right away, if you have a decrease in glucagon, you're going to stop gluconeogenesis, you're going to stop glycogenolysis, and uh, you're getting an increase in insulin, so you're going to get an uptake of that blood glucose and, and driving it down, or driving down the, the blood glucose levels. So the other benefit to that, and because there's other agents we can use, obviously, to bring the levels down, but like for a sulfonylurea, for example, if I take a sulfonylurea in the morning and I don't eat, my blood sugar is going to go down whether I like it or not. There's no, it, it's probably going to be lower than I anticipated because right. I didn't eat a meal. Right. And that's where we see all the hypoglycemic events with something like sulfonylureas. And uh, with GLP-1s, then we get a what they call the incretin effect, which is where we get this A1C uh, or glucose lowering effect better with oral uh, versus intravenous. And so the benefit of that is that 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 effect only takes place in the presence of glucose uh, that's just been introduced into the system. So if a person has a uh, meal, then their body recognizes the glucose and will start producing GLP-1. Or in this case, if we're giving them exogenous GLP-1, they will uh, be able to start acting and bringing that sugar into the blood or into the cells rather where it belongs and getting it out of the blood. Um, if the patient takes their GLP-1 and then does not eat, uh, their GLP-1 will not cause their blood sugar to go down. So we don't really see hypoglycemia uh, with GLP-1s unless you know, to, you know it's in combination with insulin and other things like that. So that's that's great. Yeah. So we also have weight loss associated with yep. uh, GLP-1s, which is also huge. Which is opposed to uh, insulin, which is going to cause weight gain. Um, and do sulfonylureas cause any weight gain? Um, I, I think it's negligible either way, but either way, um, insulin definitely causes weight gain. Yes, although that's reduced if they're taking with metformin yeah. by about three kilograms per the home trial. There you go. Fun facts. So the, uh, the GLP-1s will help you lose some weight. In fact, there's actually a version of liraglutide, uh, which is Victoza when you're using it for diabetes, but there's a three milligram version that's approved for weight loss called Sexenda. So that's approved for patients that don't have diabetes, again, because it doesn't activate unless you eat, right. but it's, it's used specifically in weight loss. Uh, but what it does is it slows gut motility so that you are not um, emptying your stomach quite as quickly. And it also curbs appetite, so they can bind to uh, areas in the hypothalamus. Um, I think it has something to do with like the uh, pro-opium, um, what is it, pro-opiocortin or melanocortin neurons firing, something like that, uh, in the brain. And so it will uh, 
cause the hypothalamus to basically increase um, satiety. So you'll have a feeling of fullness after a meal and the, the patient stays full longer and so they don't feel the need to eat. And so uh, you'll see similar effects with things like Contrave that have Wellbutrin right. and Naltrexone combina- combination. You're kind of working on that similar pathway. Um, so decrease in gastromotility and uh, curbing of the appetite, increase in satiety, they all aid in the weight loss process. So this, these drugs, especially in an overweight patient, are, are a good option. Yeah, and so we've got low risk of hypoglycemia, which, like I said, GLP-1s weren't used on a lot of these trials. Uh, we also have weight loss, which is just overall going to help your um, control and decrease your risk for other cardio or other events like cardiovascular events. And we also have some good data to say that there can be some cardiovascular benefit when you use a GLP-1, which is opposed to sulfonylureas, which it's questionable, but potentially there could be some cardiac um, detriment with sulfonylureas. So that's definitely not really something we want to risk when um, cardiovascular events are frequently what kills patients with diabetes. And that's what we're worried about, that whole death thing. Yes. So which GLP-1 is your favorite, Cole? So if I had to pick a favorite, which um, there's three, or there's three that we'll talk about, but Victoza is probably my go-to. It is once daily, which is an ideal. It's an injection. Um, But there was a trial called the LEADER trial, which showed good cardiovascular benefit when you use Victoza. Um, compared to placebo, as opposed to some of the other once dailies, um, which they've studied and the data didn't really come out um, the way they wanted it, but it did for Victoza. So that's probably my go to. Yeah. So the other, there's one that's twice daily, which is Baeta. Right. Um, Exenita. I don't even, I don't know who uses that anymore. Um, that was the first agent, and, you know, it was cool as far as a new novelty agent, but um, I'm not a big fan of that one, especially with it being twice a day. Um, we don't have the cardiovascular benefits from it, and so I definitely would prefer Victoza if you're going to use a daily, a daily use uh, GLP-1. There's also Adlixin, um, which is uh, lixacinatide, also approved now. It was in Europe for a long time, and now it's approved in the states as well. Uh, I don't see too many people on that, if anyone, and uh, not a huge fan of that either because they tried to uh, show cardiovascular benefit with that and didn't get any any benefit. No difference between that and placebo. Which was pretty funny because they spun it in a way of like, well, it doesn't cause harm, so that's good news. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But uh, yeah, so, so Victoza is definitely the go-to for, for once daily. Now, by Durian is the first, uh, which is extended uh, extended release by ETA, basically. Extended Exentide, yeah. And so the, uh, by Durian was the first one that came out that was once weekly. And so for some patients who don't want to use a daily injection, the once weekly option does seem a little better. Um, the original Bidurion pen that delivered the the injection was very cumbersome, yeah. and it was like eight feet long, I think. And it was you had to shake it. This is not a joke. You had to shake it eighty times to reconstitute. That's actually in the package insert. Check it for particles, and then reshake it another eighty times. And all of that, so, but it's very painful to inject. Yeah, a lot of patients complained about it. I would have definitely lost track trying to shake something eighty times. <laughs> I would have done an average of sixty five shakes. <laughs> And so the uh, Bidurion wasn't great. They did uh, the duration trials and, and saw that it was actually inferior to Victoza as far as A1C lowering, so also not great. And then there was no benefit when they looked at cardiovascular benefits either. Um, so 
inferior to Victoza, um, and and it is truly inferior. So it didn't it didn't not only did it not meet the meet the criteria um, for superiority, which is what they were going for, but it actually didn't even meet the criteria for non inferiority. So Victoza is a better drug for uh, A1C lowering and for weight loss. So the next one was Tanzium uh, albiglutide. That one is is being taken off the market now. Gone. GSK has stopped the production of it. Uh, and that one, again, was inferior. The Harmony 7 trial uh, showed it was inferior to the uh, to Victoza lyriglutide. And so I'm kind of glad that one's gone. That was also a pain to reconstitute. Mm-hmm. Such a pain. I don't know who invented that device. It's like but... set in a cup and it had to sit there for 30 <laughs> minutes or something like that. Yep. Jeez. It came with its own carrying cup. <laughs> That's a lie. But uh, so that one's gone. So I'm glad. Um, and then that we had Trulicity, which was my favorite for a long time. Uh, that one was actually um, the award six trial. It met uh, non-inferiority with Victoza. And so it, as far as A1C lowering, Victoza was still better with weight loss. But uh, as far as A1C lowering, it was just as good as Victoza. Once weekly, the device was awesome, uh, very easy to use. And, you know, it's definitely my go-to. You never saw the needle, which patients liked a lot. And it was a teeny tiny needle. It didn't really hurt. So a definite positive for Trulicity. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was a little bit bummed about, you know, at the time was the uh, cardiovascular data wasn't available, uh, for Trulicity and it still isn't, it should be out this year. I'm thinking this summer is the rewind trials. Yeah. Rewind trials. Mm-hmm. What's going to be, is what it's called. Uh, I think the results will be published in June or July, something like that. Um, you know, so, but still, but as far as A1C going, if someone wanted, uh, someone wanted a once weekly, then Trulicity was always my go-to. Uh, but then semaglutide came along, and semaglutide was Nova Nordisk's once-weekly GLP-1. And this one uh, met non-inferiority with um, Victoza. And actually, I think, I have to double-check myself on this, but I want to say that it actually was superior now to Lyraglutide, like the Pioneer 4, I think it is, something like that. Don't quote me on that yet, but I'll double-check and I'll put it in the comments or something. But um, I think it actually has a superiority to Victoza for A1C lowering. Hmm. Um and uh, it is compared to Trulicity, and it is superior to Trulicity. Um, and the cardiovascular benefits also showed a benefit as well. The sustained six trial uh, showed a benefit um, in as far as cardiovascular risk. So, semaglutide, brand name Ozempic, is currently my new favorite once weekly. Mm-hmm. So I'm now uh, making the switch. <laughs> from it stole Trulicity. your heart. It stole my heart, my GLP-1 heart. <laughs> And so uh, Ozempic is, is the one that I like. And it, which is weird is because Nova Nordisk actually owns the rights to Ozempic as well. So right. Nova Nordisk is yep. killing it in the GL, GLP-1 range. Yep. They know what they're doing. So, yeah, um, anything to add to that, Cole, that I didn't cover? No, knocked out of the park. I think um, either one of those would be good options. You'd obviously have to consider um, what this patient's insurance status was and what is going to be preferred or covered he's on. Um, some relatively cheaper medications at this point. So maybe he doesn't have insurance. He would be eligible for Medicare. He's 67. Mm-hmm. So you have to consider all those things. And GLP-1s are definitely not on the cheaper end. Um, but if a patient has insurance, a lot of insurances are covering now covering them nowadays. So definitely a consideration. And and I'm not saying that I wouldn't use Trulicity either because Ozempic is so new. It's probably not on a lot of formularies yet. And so I definitely would still use Trulicity. Uh, you're going to run into cases as well where the person wants a once weekly and the preferred agent is Bidurion. So 
you know, one, they do have a new uh, device out now that makes Bidurion much easier to use, but uh, it's still obviously inferior. Is the drug still the same? Um, inferior to Victoza. But if that's all the patient can afford, it's still going to lower their A1C. Right. So I'm not saying that you should never use those. I'm just saying my preferred agent in a perfect world of insurances staying out of the clinician's business, then the Trulicity and semaglutide or Ozempic would be my top two once weekly. But uh, Bidurion should still be an option if that's all the patient can afford. Yeah. You still will get good A1C lowering. And I'd rather use that than some of the other ones in the market. Yeah. And we address the cost issue a lot. Um, which, you know, we're sitting here with Beats headphones on sitting in a, um, yeah, a pot, a podcasting room. So we're, we're living in, um, the perfect world when it comes to recommendations. So that's, we go for what would be ideal. Um, but you've got to work with your patients and you've got to work with what, what they want and what they can afford, or they're not going to use their medication and there's no reason to prescribe it. Um, and some patients actually prefer once daily injections too, cause they're concerned that they're going to forget. So you know, you, most people you would think would just want to inject once a week, but some people they're like, oh, I'm, I'd like to stay on a good regimen every day. So I'd rather inject once a day. A lot of considerations. Yes. And, you know, as, if you're done beats shaming me now, <laughs> I will uh, also bring up the D, uh, DPP-4 inhibitors. Um, the thought process, I've, I saw this recently, so I at least want to address it. I have never seen really any good data, good data. I think there's one trial that I saw that used um, exenatide and uh, Genuvia together, um, which I wouldn't have, I would use a different agent if I was going to use that combo anyway. I would have used Victoza or something, but um, there's no really, all that, there's not really great data for using a GLP-1 and a DPP-4 inhibitor together. Uh, the thought process, at least in my mind, is... And if you're a endocrinologist and you want to correct me, that would be great because then I can learn something as well. But in my mind, you know, in, in physiology, what's going on is your natural GLP-1 is very short-lived. And so one of the reasons that it gets broken down so quickly is your dipeptidylpeptidase, your DPP-4 enzyme is breaking that down. So if we inhibit that enzyme, you're allowing your natural GLP-1 to flourish. But uh, the GLP-1s that we are giving, the analogs, those are uh, already resistant to the effects of DPP-4. So by adding on a DPP-4 inhibitor, uh, we're not really accomplishing a whole lot. And we're probably just going to give the person more constipation and upset stomach. And I've never seen any of the guidelines. Like if you look at the guidelines where they talk about adding on a medication, I've, I don't think that they have DPP-4 added uh, or listed as an option to add on to a GLP-1 um, and I've never, again, I, I could be wrong about this. I haven't done like an ex- exhaustive search or anything, but I've never seen any good data that shows them together. No, I, I th- I'm not an endocrinologist, but that's what? my understanding. Yeah, I know. Right. This whole time. I know. I've just been lying to you. <sighs> but I mean, that's my understanding of it too. And um, yeah, whenever I see, which does happen occasionally, a patient on both, it just seems a little redundant, especially because in general, DPP-4s aren't going to give you much A1C lowering anyway, and they're pretty expensive as well. So, it, you know, when you're thinking about the patient's best interest, it's probably best that they either just not have it or be on something different. Yeah. Probably get probably get twice the A1C lowering of the GLP-1. Right. Average, yeah. average speaking. Which I think they're working on an oral GLP-1, they aren't are. they? Yes, semaglutide. Yeah, semaglutide. There you go. Novo Nordisk. They Killing also it. have some... Um, 
free information, diabe- good diabetes yeah, um, it's, uh, patient yeah, it's, information, it's right? It's excellent. And, and by the way, we're not sponsored at all by Never no. Nurse. So if you're a rep... But them, we're not opposed to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're a rep for them, you're welcome. Right. <laughs> but uh, Novo Medlink, I think is the website. Yeah. Um, talk to them because they actually make money off of it. But um, it's it's free for healthcare professionals to give to patients. Um, it, they're they're very, very good. Uh, the only the only time I'll make recommendations on here, even if they were trying to sponsor us, would be if I use them myself. And I do use these uh, products for my diabetes patients uh, that I see uh, for the AmCare type program that I'm with, and I, they're they're excellent. And so I, I give them to all my patients, and it really helps with carb counting and understanding A1C and different goals and things like that. Awesome. So, so finishing up with this patient, we want to increase his metformin, um, potentially get him on a GLP-1 if that's a good option for him. Um, so what about his blood pressure? We want to mess with that at all? So his blood pressure right now is 155 over 93. Okay. So the JNC8 uh, would recommend one, 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 one. 150 over 90 and because of his age. However, we don't like JNC8. At least we don't. Um, if you do, sorry. I, I'm much more of an advocate for the, the new blood pressure guidelines. And they would they would put him even at his age would put him at uh, one thirty over ninety. Mm-hmm. And other guidelines are falling in line too. Yes. For instance, the ACE guidelines are now recommending one thirty over ninety as well. Um, so it it does seem like that's a reasonable at least long term goal for him um, to get to. Exactly. And if and if you have questions about uh, you know using that in patients with diabetes because you're thinking, well, didn't the Accord trial? show uh, a, a harm or no benefit it did one? we just talked about that no but we didn't talk about blood pressure though, did we oh man dang it <sighs> so left that out unbelievable <laughs> we did talk about it, i think in the first podcast though so i won't go through it but basically uh read the accordion review uh it's a very good summary of why the blood pressure arm of the accord trial maybe not what maybe wasn't all that great uh it was a two by two factorial trial and so they're thinking that the a1c lowering uh, group could have negatively impacted because it was the same patient population. So some of the patients that were in the uh, more intensive blood pressure lowering group were also in the intensive glucose or intensive A1C control. And so the uh, the the thought process is maybe those those results from the intensive A1C could have uh, decreased the actual benefit or, or masked the benefit of the blood pressure being lower because we did see a, a decrease in stroke with the intensive glucose group. Or I'm sorry, decrease. Um, intensive blood pressure lowering yeah and check out our first podcast for that i think it's pretty good we probably stumbled over our words a little bit it was numero uno but yeah um a good review of the new blood pressure guidelines yes. and um and what the recommendations are i think it was voted number one review of 2018 podcast review yeah maybe or 2017 i don't know when we recorded that whatever i dare it you wasn't... to find another podcast review of that <laughs> those guidelines. there's probably 18 of them <laughs> they all rank way above us uh-huh. so anyways so yeah, the uh, blood pressure goal for this guy would be, um, in my mind, 130 over 80, if he could tolerate it. You know, there's always exceptions to the rule, as always. Yeah, I think I said 130 over 90 before, but I definitely meant 130 over 80. Yeah, I think actually, no, I said 130 over 90 for sure. So okay. I meant... Yeah. We are now correcting ourselves. <laughs> 130 over 80. So um, yeah, so the the, uh, the ACE guidelines now are saying uh, the same thing, echoing the, the new blood pressure guidelines. Uh, the issue that I have, even if this person had perfect uh, blood pressure and we didn't want to do anything um, the issue that i have is the patient is on a calcium channel blocker and they are now spilling protein in the urine so because we have proteinuria um, we have to start considering maybe what's causing that other than just 
the patient having prolonged diabetes. Uh, and so the way to think about amlodipine mechanistically is its effect on the in its effect on the kidneys to think that it dilates the afferent arterial, which is feeding into the glomerulus. Um, efferent arterial is allowing blood to, blood flow to exit. So you're getting dilation of the afferent arterial, um, but nothing on the efferent arterial. So you are increasing intraglomerular pressure um, and causing uh, or potentially causing uh, proteinuria. So if this person had perfect blood pressure, I would probably suggest stopping the amlodipine and switching to an ACE or an ARB. Um, ACE and ARBs will dilate the efferent arterial, and so you will get that uh, decrease in intraglomerular pressure and allow the blood flow to be a little bit more of an easy process, and you can hopefully uh, stop them from, from spilling protein. Sure. And so if we, in this case, because we have to add on uh, an agent because we want to get his blood pressure a little lower, uh, we could add on either um, an ACE or an ARB. I would, to make it easy, if he didn't want to take another medication, then we could just give him Lotrel, generic Lotrel, which is benazepril and amlodipine. And uh, it's not expensive. Not expensive anymore. Uh, if he is okay with taking two different medications, uh, I would probably give him amlodipine in the morning, and then I would probably give benazepril or lisinopril um, at, at night. And just based on the renal protective properties of the ACE, the MicroHope trial uh, was dosed at night, and then MAPEC, which it was a small trial, and that only inclu- included patients with three or more meds, um, but that one showed a benefit when one of the agents was dosed at night as well, which if you think about it, the RAS system, it's more active at night, so it would make sense to dose the ACE Makes at sense nighttime. to me. And that way, you don't have to worry about whether the person's a, a dipper or a non-dipper. Right. And you can uh, cover all your bases. And so uh, the blood pressure would hopefully go down a little bit, monitor his uh, renal function, look for any kind of uh, AKI, and then also his potassium if you're adding on an ACE. But um, Yeah, and if it seems like we've touched on these things before, we probably have, but we reiterate them because they're important. Plus, we also don't listen to our own podcast, so we don't know <laughs> right. what we covered. So we don't know what we did. Um, but we're probably going to come back to diabetes as well, so we're just focusing on this guideline today. But diabetes, there's a lot to it. Um, it can be easy, but it can also be complicated. So I'm sure we will have future diabetes podcasts. Yes. Maybe a ton more because we'll Maybe have to so. recycle topics. Basically. So, because we, 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 we don't know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so that's so, this patient. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, I think um, adding an ACE would be beneficial for his kidneys and his blood pressure. Add in the GLP-1, maybe Ozempic or Trulicity. And then uh, atorvastatin, I would leave alone. Uh, if, you know, he's getting older, but still, um, high-intensity statin would be where I would want them uh, because of the um, increased chance of having uh, issues with cardiovascular events, being that he has diabetes and hypertension. Mm-hmm. His ASCVD risk is probably quite high. Um, as far as aspirin goes, because um, that might be another thought process, he's 67. The, the sweet spot for primary prevention is really 50 to 59 and then outweighing the uh, risk versus benefit um, 60 to 69 and you know we can decrease the uh, chance of having cardiovascular event and colorectal cancer but we typically think 10 10 15 years about 10 years yeah um, at least out from the patient starting it so is this patient able to take uh, aspirin every day for 10 years and because he's already 67 years old I probably wouldn't risk it but be something to consider if he'd already had an event or something uh, if he'd already had a stroke or TIA maybe maybe would be a lot 
better candidate, but in this particular patient, um, wouldn't be too worried about it. Right. And interestingly, the benefit is really only there while you're taking the aspirin. So if you hit 70 and you're like, okay, I'll take it off, um, which is reasonable, then it's not like a long lasting benefit type of thing. So. Yes. So yes, that's, uh, is pay anything we want to add? I mean, we can ad lib all day if you want. Yeah, we could, but you know, these people, I'm sure they get tired of it after, you know, how long are people's attention spans? Like seven minutes? Seven minutes. I think we're past that. Yeah. So we basically had to wake you up every seven minutes times five. With our charismatic and charming personalities. Yeah, absolutely. So we can wrap it up. I don't have anything else for this guy. All right. So that is the uh, patient KJ. And we'll, uh, we can post a copy that's sure. pretty short. Super simple. Yeah. Post it online if you guys want to check it out on the website. Uh, feel free to leave any comments or likes. We also appreciate likes. <laughs> and, um, you know, ratings on iTunes and all those help us. We are on Spotify now. If you're happening to listen uh, to us on Spotify, then you're uh, a pioneer. Because <laughs> we just got on today, actually. You got the email right before we started the podcast. Uh-huh. That was cool. And uh, reach out to us if you have any questions. We're on all social media platforms, um, or you can reach us by email. Um, you can reach my, me personally, M Corvino, C O R V I N O, at coreconsolerx.com. And uh, give us any feedback, or if you want to be a guest, by all means, reach out and we will consider your application. <laughs> and join us next time. Y'all have a good one.